So, you know, I say that people are purpose-driven beings and we grow towards purpose the way trees grow toward light. And the problem is that in many cases, we, are, we, we don't think there's an opportunity to integrate our work and purpose. But when people find that there is, uh, uh, it's deeply fulfilling. And welcome everyone to the Real Leaders Podcast where today impacts tomorrow. People are purpose-driven beings and leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that, my friends, is the voice of Jonathan Rose. And in today's episode, Jonathan and I, and we we take a, a time machine back in history. We go back to Gobekli Tepe today, 12,000 years. What can we learn from ancient civilizations to help prepare us for tomorrow. Find out on this episode of the Real Years Podcast with the real Jonathan Rose. Enjoy. Not a single one. Okay. Well, that's fine. It's your job to ask the questions. Exactly. Exactly. It's my job. All right. And we will go live here in five four three two and one and welcome everyone to this episode of the Relieers podcast i'm your host kevin edwards joining me from new york city today is jonathan fp rose the ceo of jonathan rose companies jonathan how are we doing today very well thank you so jonathan uh your organization uh Jonathan Rose Companies, uh, it's fascinated me when I've been doing a lot of research. You've been developing and building affordable communities, uh, healthy communities, insightful communities, educational communities for people uh, in poverty-stricken areas for quite some time. It's it's pretty impressive for what you're doing. Uh, And so I guess the, the first question I have for you, Jonathan, is when you were growing up in your community... What did you appreciate the most about it? So the thing I appreciated the most were were two things. The first was access to nature. I grew up in a suburb of New York City. And um, there was a small, I think it was 40 acres of land that had been donated a long time ago by a family called the Butler family. It was called Butler Woods. And I used to play in, ride my bicycle to Butler Woods and play in Butler Woods. And having this access to nature uh, I, I loved as a child. And I did all kinds of things. You know, I created built forts with friends and we'd create all kinds of adventures and all that. But, uh, and we'd come home incredibly muddy and incredibly happy. Uh, and then, and that was also a thing where it was a safe neighborhood in which I could ride my bike anywhere. And as I became a teenager, um, I could easily walk to a train station and take the train to New York City, which was another form of liberation. Um, uh, so those were two wonderful qualities of where I grew up. And Jonathan, have these qualities, uh, do they manifest in the communities that you build today? I mean, are these uh, communities environmentally friendly? Do they have any of the same attributes that you had when you were growing up? Uh, they do. I grew up in a single family neighborhood, so that is a structurally different thing than than. Um, and the kind of multifamily communities we build. But yes, so number one, we, we were a very early leader in the focus on transit-oriented development and the need for, uh, to both reduce our environmental impacts and, our, and to improve social relations and to give lower and moderate income people access to jobs and education, healthcare, et cetera. Mass transit is incredibly important. Uh, our company did a really early study in the 90s that showed that uh, the environmental impact 
of getting to and from a building could be larger than the environmental impact of the building itself. So for example, a single family suburban house may use so many B2s of energy, but could use twice as much energy in the cars getting to and from it. Mm. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, we did this early work that showed how much, how important location and transit was to reducing environmental impacts in real estate. And uh, I, I promoted that for decades. And now that is very common. When I began, uh, there were very few people thinking that way. And now that is very common. When I also began, I, I said how important mass transit was for uh, reducing costs, not environmental impacts, but also costs and increasing access for people who lived in, in projects. And interestingly, in the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, even the early 2000s, we were such a sub suburban focused nation that um, the real estate industry kind of ignored this. And in 2005, I put together an investment fund that whose strategy was we were going to only buy buildings that are in walking distance to mass transit. Mm. And uh, I don't want to say that was mocked, but uh, the industry did not feel that made a lot of sense. And what we said is this is going to future-proof values. And of course, what happened is that over the last 15 years, the value of transit-oriented development has absolutely been proved that people completely prefer to live in walkable communities, particularly millennially millennial and younger generations and um uh and so the value of real estate that's in, in transiting locations is absolutely worth more so it was a great strategy and it's a strategy i happen to have grown up with okay so your affordable housing is within walking distances of mass transit right. for the sole purpose of reducing your carbon footprint or something like that? So it reduces our residents' carbon footprints, but it also increases their ability to easily get to work right. in an affordable way. So there, just to give some more context, yeah. uh, for working class families in America, there are 20 million families in America that spend more than 50% of their income on housing. And because they are living typically in the suburbs, there's more suburban poverty than urban poverty. They're spending up to 30% of their income getting to and from work. Um, and if there are two people working in a family, they need two cars, they got to pay car payments and insurance and all that stuff. So uh, they can be spending 30% of their income on transportation. 50 and 30, 80% of their income on housing and transportation, there's almost nothing left for education, for school. So we know that number one, when people move from paying 50% of their income on housing to 30% of their income on housing, that reduction, that extra 20% of saving, hmm. leads to dramatic, to longer lives, better health outcomes, better education outcomes for their kids. And the same thing happens when you save the money on the transportation side. So obviously building affordable housing that only costs people 30% of their income that's next to mass transit, not only has all these environmental benefits, it has social health and education benefits. So you're coming from New York City, the most populated city in America. Uh, I'm sure there's got to be some challenges with development and buildings. Uh, obviously, mass transit yeah. is a big issue over there. Um, what are some of the challenges that you've faced throughout, you know, I guess, maybe even since 2005? And uh, maybe explain to our audience some solutions of how uh, you've taken those on. 
Okay, so let's back up. So first of all, we are a national company. We work all over the country. And I actually, although living in New York, began my work in Denver in 1989. Our company is 30 years old, where I saw enormous opportunity. So we deal with all kinds of cities and all kinds of contexts around, around the country. So what we have seen since the Great Recession, let's take it since the Great Recession, so um, is that the... Uh, housing income gap is greater than ever. So uh, there is now no county in America where if somebody works a full-time minimum wage job, they can afford a rent. Um, and there are only 16 counties where if you're working full-time, I'm sorry, to rent a two-bedroom apartment, and there's only 16 counties which are pretty rural counties where they can afford to rent a one bedroom apartment. So we have an enormous income affordability gap. We have this tremendous undersupply of affordable housing. On one hand, for us, that's really good from a more economic, economic model because what it means is our projects, which provide affordable mixed income housing, are always 100% full and have long waiting lists. Right. And if a recession comes, they're only going to have longer waiting lists. So uh, the supply de- supply demand is not an issue that, that we have. There are many other issues we have to deal with. But what we've also seen is dramatically rising construction costs, which make it uh, so all affordable housing is subsidized. And so, and we have not seen the pot of money grow significantly for affordable housing. The most important pot for growing, building new affordable housing are low-income housing tax credits and tax-exempt bonds. Because costs have risen so much, 20 years ago, the federal allocation of tax credits could build 100,000 new affordable housing units a year. In America today, it only builds 50,000 new units. We're losing 120,000 units to gentrification. So as a country, we're going backwards. But what this means is that the that we're in cities that, such as New York, that eagerly want to build more affordable housing. They recognize there's a demand. They are bringing their own resources to add to the federal resources to grow, try and grow that supply. But there simply is not enough affordable housing financing to build the, the amount that each of these cities need. So, mm-hmm. for example, in Denver, uh, uh, there are probably, I believe, eight times as many or six times as many applicants for the low-income housing tax credit as there is supply. We're seeing this uh, condition all over the country. So a tremendous need for our product, appreciation for our product, desire for cities to create more affordable housing, um, a rather also a very substantial recognition that affordable housing should be next to mass transit, but not enough resources to build the amount that's needed. Right. Yeah. And that's what kind of what I was alluding to is, you know, us as human beings, uh, we're so drawn to uh, culture and, and big cities. Uh, it, it's impressive. We have all this land, but people, we just have these hives, like beehives almost, where we all go and, and we use the same resources and, and somehow in some way we're figuring out. But I think it was even on your website, uh, you had mentioned like by 2080, you know, these big time cities are going to see some of effects of overpopulation of 
climate change, of lack of resources. Um, I have a quote from my favorite author, Mark Twain. He says, history doesn't re- repeat itself. It often rhymes. What have you learned from history and what can history teach us about uh, for planning uh, urban development in future cities to come? Got it. So I wrote a book about this. I wrote a book called The Well-Tempered City, uh, which starts with the very beginning of civilization and looks at the history of cities throughout time and then tries to take those lessons for the future and how do we use them to address issues such as climate change and population growth and, and all that. And by the way, it's not just the large cities that are growing, it's the smaller and medium-sized cities that are growing. Um, and in some ways, uh, in the United States, we're seeing the growth of large cities stabilizing and even beginning to perhaps decline a little bit oh, as okay. people move to... Because think of, for example, San Francisco. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, it's a, it's almost impossible for somebody earning a good salary to find an affordable place to live in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, I know somebody who worked for Google who... Um, uh, could not had a budget of a million dollars to buy a house and could not find anything that met the family's needs in uh, in the Bay Area. And then they got transferred to Austin and found an amazing house in one of the best school districts in the country. By the way, Austin has like three of the 10 best schools in America uh, for $350,000. So it was a, com- uh, a complete transformation of what the quality of life was for that family being in another city. So we're seeing that happen more. But let's go to the lessons. So the first thing is, we're going to go to the very beginning of civilization. 50,000 years ago, an amazing thing happened to the human species, and it was the, the unfolding of our ability to have cognitive symbolic thought and develop symbolic language. So language itself is a symbolic system you know we use words to represent ideas and other externalities the invention of language allowed us to socially organize in huge ways and led to the whole advance of civilization we see the emergence of music of art of science of religion is all happening within within ten thousand years of the emergence of language so all of human culture came from this ability for symbolic thought so why do i focus on that for the future because with the coming of automation um, and robotics and artificial intelligence, many of the things that humans do today, many of those jobs will be eliminated. So what are going to be the jobs of the 21st century? They're going to, to me, fall into two categories. The first is those jobs based on symbolic knowledge and symbolic language, our ability to be creative, our ability to uh, imagine new things, create symbols of those, which language, science, etc. are, and then, you know, invent new pathways. So the, remember I said that if you're a minimum wage worker today, you can't afford to, there's no housing you can afford. But what happens when all those jobs are min, uh, eliminated? So the, the only way those people are employable is they have this magnificent capacity, expanded cognitive capacity of symbolic language. That is always, symbolic thought has always been the driver at each level of civilization. We need to be preparing our citizens for this very visible emerging future. Um, uh, So that's number one. The second thing that's really interesting is the first city, the first building in the world that we know of was this amazing temple in southern Turkey called Gobekli Tepe. And it's about 10,000 years old or so. 
And before that, I mean, maybe we know people are living in caves and maybe they lived in straw huts, but that's about it. Uh, Thatched reeds, but that's about it. And then all of a sudden there's this enormous, fantastic temple that has huge pillars that are carved. They think it took 500 people to be able to carry them that are carved with these amazing figures of half man, half beast. And uh, why did this thing exist? Uh, And how did it just come essentially out of nowhere? Uh, and what it really shows is that humans had a need, and we saw this from the very beginning of civilization, humans had a need to align with nature. They need mm-hmm. to create balance between humans and nature. And um, it's a very early part, that we, and that's the, at the root of the temple. And for the next 10,000 years, every city was, it was found in a location where there was first a temple. And uh, a great archaeologist says, first came the temple, then came the city. Um, and that temple always symbolized this desire for balance of humans and nature. And what we're seeing in the emerging pattern of cities is also this great need for humans to balance humans and nature, that the harsh concrete cities, that they bring with them a lot of psychological issues, et cetera, and that people love to be near parks. And we're seeing... Uh, cities such as Singapore, which are dramatically densified by increasing, they're saying now every building has to be at least 50 stories tall. It has to be mixed use, mixed income, and mixed race. It's They're designing a whole mass transit subway system, so every building is walkable. And the reason why is so they can get rid of roads and turn their roads into nature. Uh, and infuse the city with nature. And we're seeing the most popular cities in the world have great pathways of nature. Another interesting thing is, so we have Gobekli Tepe, and then out of that comes agriculture, and then we see little towns, and the towns start trading. And the reason they trade is because they have different things. So you have villages that are growing olives, and other ones that are growing figs, and other that are grazing sheep, and other ones that are growing weed and bulgur, and others that are like making little pots and all this stuff. So people trade because they have different things. If everyone had the same thing, why bother trading? So this amazing network over 1,500 miles called an interaction sphere emerges, and it's all about trade. Now, what is trade? What, what is this interaction sphere? It is the integration of differentiation. They're different stuff, different ecologies, different cultures, but you're tying it together. A great uh, cognitive scientist named Dan Siegel says the healthy mind integrates differentiated parts. The healthy civilization and the healthy city integrate differentiated parts. So you need two things in a healthy city. You need this differentiation and you need ways of integrating. I actually think that uh, the recent trade wars that our country is engaged in is the exact antithesis to this. I mean, we are, we're seeing countries increasingly trying to isolate themselves, which is really dangerous because what you see is the evolution of civilization evolves from this integration of differentiated parts. Hmm. So, but anyway, that is, uh, so there, there are all these lessons that you can just literally look at how civilization grew and then you can say, so what do we need for the future? So for the future, we need, you know, the healthiest city. So why are New York and London, if you look at the biggest, the most prosperous or influential cities in the world, and they're the ones that are trading, that are, that are globally connected, that are integrating differentiated parts. I'll tell you another story about that. So in 1953 or in the 50s, 
1950, Birmingham, Alabama, and Atlanta, Georgia had exactly the same population, and they had exactly the same income within a thousand people of population within a thousand dollars of median income. Hmm. Delta Airline goes to them both and says, we want to become a regional airline and we want to connect globally. And um, uh, Birmingham, which was very inward looking, said, we don't want that. We don't want those trade unionists coming down from Chicago. We don't want those Mexicans coming up from Mexico City, which are places that uh, Delta wanted to start flying to. Um, and so they raised their commercial fuel tax to make it harder for Delta to be there. Atlanta said, bring it on. We're actually going to issue a bond issue and help you build a new airport. Okay. 30 years later, uh, Atlanta is four times the size, more than four, I can't remember the size, but at least four times right, larger yeah. in population, uh, four times larger in population and has twice the median income. And it all came from being a, a connective place versus an internal looking place. So prosperity comes from connectivity. Now, the issue, the other issue we have to deal with in the 21st century, which we also learned, which we learned primarily, primarily from the history of indigenous cultures, is we currently have a linear economy. So we have an economy, it's an extractive economy, in which we take stuff from the earth, other resources, we use them, we chew them up, we pollute a lot at making them, and we throw them out. 96% of the things that enter a city leave it six months later as waste. We need to move to a circular economy and a regenerative system of economics. Our economic system now rewards you for spending the least amount on the common good by, you know, polluting the air, polluting water, you know, exploiting people. Uh, the more you can save, you can create profit for a company and save uh, and not spend on the common good, the better. A regenerative economy is one that rewards you with profit for best enhancing the common good, hmm. for making the most contribution to the whole. Um, so we're going to have to figure out, and we're seeing uh, capitalism fraying. We're seeing with income inequality and social unrest, polarization. We're going to have to and revolution is, is not a good thing. Revolution is a very destructive thing. So we're going to have to think of an evolutionary way to move from our current vision of capitalism to a more regenerative vision of capitalism. Hmm. Interesting. And has there been any instances of a regenerative economy that's uh, been so in many successful in the past? In many indigenous cultures, we see regenerative economies. Um, and in many uh, agricultural cultures, we see regenerative economies. We see self-sustaining economies. I'll give you uh, an interesting contemporary example. There's a company called Lime Timber that buys forests. It puts them in sustainable yield systems so that they um, are only cutting trees that are appropriate for the health of the forest and that actually create space for trees to regrow. They then build sawmills adjacent to the forest that hires, that is, that is designed for the sustainable cut. Hmm. So you can go to the people who are employed there and say, there will be jobs here a hundred years from now, because this isn't a slash and burn. It's not like we're going to abuse the forest and then 20 years down, close the sawmill and you're all out of work. Hmm. So it's all in balance. Um, and the forest is regenerating continuously. So it means the, Trees are growing back, so there's more. There'll be more future for the employees in the sawmill. So, so I can give you other examples. That's a very clear, simple example. But it's a, 
regenerative economy. And actually, the more you nurture the ecology of that forest, the better the economic health of the community will be. Yeah, it, Jonathan, it's 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 interesting. Uh, I was just interviewing uh, Pete Gombert, the founder of Indie Dwell. It's a another affordable housing uh, company. But what they do for their affordable housing is they regenerate um, uh, shipping containers into homes. Right. Uh, so that was another uh, example of a circular economy, a regenerative uh, way to sustain affordable housing, uh, quality housing for for people and communities. Uh, you were mentioning now. Let's just reflect on that a little bit, Jonathan. Yeah, that was a big, big summary of what we can yeah. learn from our past that we can implement in today's day and age, especially when it comes to affordable housing and communities. Um, one of the examples I like to give is uh, Teotihuacan. Are you familiar with Teotihuacan in uh, uh, South America? Uh, yes, but tell me what your example about it is. Okay, so Teotihuacan uh, is like for people listening to this for the first time, uh, it's uh, to my understanding, it's a civil, the first civilization from the Aztec. So it's the people that originated from the Aztec yeah. Empire. One of the first uh, civilizations in the Americas. And no one seems to know quite exactly what happened to them. Um, from some archaeologists say, you know, the, the city had a massive uprising, that they wanted to kill the people that were in ch- charge and held the power. But one theory suggests that they... Uh, expanded and built so much that they devastated the forests and the agriculture within it and starved the communities. So this is another example of what maybe, or when you refer to a linear economy, maybe some things that we can take from our our past that we can look going forward. You also mentioned Gobekli Tepe, uh, Potbelly Hill, uh, another uh, civilization that is under some some, uh, scrutiny right now. Some people are kind of debating what really happened there, but it seems to be that that was a place of, like you said, differentiation and integration, Um, a place that was uh, purposely buried, actually, um, because of uh, who knows? Was it a flood? Was it a meteor that came down? We really don't know yet. Um, but the last thing I wanted to mention, and this will be the, the prelude to my question, is agriculture, sustaining agriculture. For me, from what I've been taught is agriculture is the reason for communities. It was the rachis of rice, the rachis of wheat um, that the people unintentionally domesticated um, that produced higher yields of grains, which basically made uh, the hunter gatherers uh, stop hunting and gathering and say, Hey, we have a, a sustainable food source here. Communities, arts, everything comes together now because of this domestication of these wheat and flour and plants. So the question I have for you, Jonathan, after that long prelude is, what are you doing in your communities to sustain food sources and how important is it for these communities to have healthy foods? Got it. I just want to go back to the Aztec example for a sure. second. Yeah, absolutely. Because what we think happened, and this is, by the way, a warning for the future, which is that every time civil, so what civilizations do when they're prosperous is they expand to the very limits of their environment. So as cities grow, they create more fields and more fields and more fields to, to feed them and to feel, and to. Uh, for that agriculture to work, they bring more and more irrigation and blah, blah, blah. And then a drought comes. And so they, mm. they maximize this for kind of like maximum water flow. Right. And then a drought comes 
and the fields don't produce as much and all of a sudden there's not enough food. So what we observe is that when the civilization has vast income inequality and the people and basically the food the food supply is more limited and its distribution is unequal then the people riot. And you can tell they riot because the cities are destroyed. You can see they're burnt. You can see like the way that they were just they were destroyed in violence. When civilizations have more of a sense of fairness and equality, they just peter out. So, you know, there's not enough food. So people drift off. They go migrate somewhere else. Some starve. The, the whole thing contracts. Um, and um, so solving income inequality is really important. So we're at that state now. Clearly, uh, climate change is coming and clearly our food supplies are going to be threatened and reduced, potentially reduced by it. There may be technological solutions, but, but food, we're in a unique state in the world where we are feeding more people than ever. I mean, there's less starvation as a proportion of population than ever. But climate change is going to put that at risk. And if our distribution of food is unequal, we are going to see uh, political trouble. So uh, what are we doing about this? Hmm. So low-income people often do not eat or eat very poorly for at least a week a month because their budgets are so tight. So we do several things. So first of all, all of our projects have community gardens and we try and encourage people to grow healthy food. And we try and speak to them about healthy food because low income communities often only have access to really bad for you, uh, fast foods. And the second thing is we connect our, our projects with um, either what are called mobile groceries or mobile food banks, et cetera, um, uh, food share. There's different programs in every city and state. But our goal is to connect our residents to as much healthy food as possible. That the the idea to differentiate and integrate uh, into these communities, uh, is this something that most real estate developers are paying attention to? Um, or what's the common... Um, I guess, understanding amongst uh, your industry about what we need to be thinking about in the long term as we start developing all these uh, suburban and, and you know, sustainable, affordable housing. So it's interestingly how it's evolving. So first of all, in the affordable space, I was, so just one more thing. Um, we are deeply, uh, our future in America and many other places in the world is deeply determined by zip code. So those who live in the healthiest zip code will statistically live 20 years longer than those who live in the least healthy zip code. Uh, those who, uh, I grew up in a zip code where 95% of the kids went to college and their zip codes where 0% of the kids go to college. Our mission as a company is to actually overcome this misallocation of opportunity in zip codes, which we feel is a social justice issue. So our goal is to take affordable mixed income housing, which is often in low opportunity communities and bring on-site after school education programs and access to healthy food and access to health care and a variety of things to improve the health and well-being of our residents and help lift them to higher opportunity. Now, that's our that's our mission. Uh, and, you know, as I said, our field is affordable housing. We're often in lower income communities. There are similarities between that and what the regular old real estate industry is doing. The regular old real estate industry used to just provide a place to live. And starting in the 2000s, 
there was an amenity war race where people were adding more gyms. Now we have put exercise rooms in all of our projects because it's part of the health program for our residents. But you're seeing bigger and better gyms and community rooms and community kitchens and all this stuff happening in market rate real estate. And market rate real estate is, is now competing with not only social programs suited for its residents, but a lot of focus. So many market rate projects now offer yoga classes and meditation classes and all that stuff. So there, uh, we have different objectives. Our, those are, their objective is the health and well-being of their residents. Ours is the more of an opportunity focus. But, but we're seeing the amenitizing of real estate uh, and the socializing of real estate as a theme across all sectors. Jonathan, have you found your employees are uh, going or being driven to your company because of this purpose, because of this idea to sustain uh, these these affordable cities and, and really help out people in their own lives? Absolutely. So that is uh, a, a significant competitive advantage. So it's, it's got two sides to us. We need mission-focused people to do mission-focused work. So being so emphatically and clearly mission focused um, helps us attract the right people and not attract the wrong people. Mm-hmm. And then it helps with stickiness because people can find meaning and purpose in working with us. Yeah. And we've, we found that with a lot of the, the companies that we've interviewed, they've all said the exact same thing. It's, right. it's, it's interesting um, why you would do anything else, uh, I guess. Right. <laughs> uh... So, you know, I say that people are purpose-driven beings and we grow towards purpose the way trees grow toward light. And the problem is that in many cases, we, are, we, we don't think there's an opportunity to integrate our work and purpose. But when people find that there is, uh, uh, it's deeply fulfilling. Well, Jonathan, we've talked about a lot today. Uh, We've talked about kind of your upbringing and your communities, what you learned, what attributes you've taken from that and implemented into uh, your projects nowadays, your company nowadays. Uh, talked a lot about history. We wanted a big, big rant about uh, Teotihuacan, Gobekli Tepe, uh, what we can learn from our past uh, that we should be playing for in the future. So to stay on that topic, though, you said in 2005, we we're planning for mass transit uh, to reduce these carbon emissions. Is climate change something that you planned for in 2005? Yeah. Or when did you start realizing that, hey, this thing is, is has the potential to, you know, one, wipe out a lot of communities and really um, do something to food supply? Uh, so I just want to correct that. You would ask me about 2005. So our company was founded in 1989. Right. right. And in 1989, we, the, one of our very first principles is that we would only develop projects next to mass transit. So we were really, and that was a time in which America was vastly suburbanizing. Almost no one else was thinking that way. So the idea of transit was deep in the in, uh, DNA of the company. The idea of being reducing our environmental impacts was also deep in the environmental com- uh, in, in the ethos of our company. And back then we didn't have lead or other systems for how to green buildings. So I had to invent my own. But so, uh, so I actually created a, a whole internal guideline system. And we were a tiny company at the time, but still. So the I, so from the very founding of the company in 1989, we tried to figure out how we could 
consume less energy, reduce our climate and environmental impacts, reduce our water consumption, and reduce the use of toxic materials in our buildings. Uh, Jonathan, did, didn't your organization have something to do with bringing internet access to some of the Ooh. first communities? Yeah. So in 19, so I graduated from college in 1974, went to a little bit of graduate school, started working real estate in 1976 for my family's real estate company in New York City, which is a very reputable market rate multifamily company and learned the trade of, of real estate development, always wanting to be more social and mission oriented and left and started in 1989 started my own company. But in 1979, I took a leave of absence because I was living in lower Manhattan. I was in Soho. I was like, it's part of a whole other culture that was going on then. And I knew stuff was happening down there and I wanted to be part of it. And so I proposed a project to my family's business that they did not want to do. So I kind of took a leave of absence and renovated an old loft building on the edge between Soho and Tribeca called the American Thread Building. And I said, I saw that people, that whole community is about living and working in arts and creativity and all that stuff integrated. And I, I could see that the future of work was the digital realm. Now, this is before the PC was invented. And so I put together the first building in the world that came with internet access in every unit. And the fastest modem we could buy then was 300 baud. And we had to connect everybody with dumb terminals and then eventually replace them with Apple IIs. Um, to, uh, there were only two ISPs, it was very primitive internet at that time. Um, and by the way, there was no, since there was no home consumer market, all, it was all software in the cloud. So if you wanted to use word processing, you had to go through this incredibly low speed to some word processing program somewhere in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, but anyway, so we created the first LiveWork building, an incredibly innovative building full of all kinds of fascinating people. That was the first building in the world that had internet access for every unit. Now, fast forward to 2019. Yeah. Are there any tech innovations out there that you see coming that are a humanity shifting idea that could really have this paradigm shift in how affordable housing is built and how people connect and, and uh, operate? No. No, nothing else. <laughs> I mean, no, no, there's lots of stuff that's happening, but you say total paradigm shifting. I, 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 um, obviously, artificial intelligence will be paradigm shifting. It won't change. Well, I have a vision for how we build, but this is going to take another 30 years. So it's not a 2019 vision. So in 2019, I see the growth of, of information. What we really need to do is to be able to uh, bring our information together in more coherent ways, harmonize it. Uh, and and dive into it and and um, use it uh, to figure out how to operate better and how to serve people better. Um, also, but the big issue probably in 2020 is going to be data privacy, and this is going to impact every company because increasingly reg legislation is going to make us responsible as holders of our resident or customers' data. Mm. And so that's an area that, and most of us, you know, we use a third party, like in, in real estate, almost everybody uses a, a firm called Yardy that does our accounting, et cetera. So uh, we're going to be liable if they screw up. This is going to be an interesting thing. 
Jonathan, you said the vision in, in 50 years. Are, are you a visionary? Uh, would you consider yourself a visionary? And how important is it for the leader of a company to share their vision uh, with the others? I do think it's important to have a vision. And I think it's a particularly important to have a social ecological vision, a vision uh, we, we live in a world with a tremendous amount of challenges, and um, uh, I believe there are many forces for good. Uh, I, I believe that academia can be a force for good, government certainly can be a force for good, and the private sector absolutely can be a force for good. And that, But it will only be a force for good if we have a vision towards the world we want to create, and a vision as to what our pathway would be to get us there. And then an understanding of what the steps are that we need to begin taking to get us there. And you have to communicate that to all your employees because we all have to act as a cohesive whole on a pathway going somewhere. Well, Jonathan, uh, appreciate your time coming on the show today. Uh, your impact that your company has been able to make uh, is why we are talking today uh, as a part of uh, Jonathan Rose companies being featured on the Aurelia's uh, Impact Awards, featuring the 100 top impact companies of 2020. So the last question I have for you, Jonathan, is what is your definition of a real leader? So my definition of a real leader is... Um, so a company, so I'm going to go back, a real leader is like a farmer. So a great farmer's job is to grow, is to create amazing soil from which the plants will come. If the soil is healthy, everything else works out. If the soil is healthy, there's nothing that works out. And amazing farmers are always through crop rotation and fertilization and organic methods. And, and as they care for the soil, everything comes from that. So the same thing in a company and in a society, actually. I believe our job is to create the company as a fertile and generative soil from which our, our people can be leaders. Our people can be carry things out. Our people can work in in teams, our people can be happy and can create a better future. If the common, I've talked about the common good before, so our job, and some of these like really practical systems we have to make sure that happen, and, and policy we have to make sure it happens, a lot of it is culture we have to make sure it happens, but our job is to tend to the soil of our companies, and if we can do that well, everything else will take care of itself. Well said, Jonathan. Well, for Jonathan Rose, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there and nurture your company, till the soil, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you.